Welcome to the WIDA Connect podcast series, where we will explore all the hot topics affecting the equipment dealer industry. From industry news, government affairs, and manufacturer relations, to business best practices, technology, and marketing for equipment dealers, brought to you by the Western Equipment Dealers Association, here to advocate, elevate, and educate. And now, let's connect. Welcome to the podcast, Lance. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. Yeah, so today we are going to talk about sales tax and a recent decision by the Supreme Court that affects the way some dealers may have to remit sales tax. And, uh, you know, sales tax is an issue uh, always complex for equipment dealers because of the mix of products and services that are taxable and tax exempt. Another wrinkle that further complicates the issue is when dealers sell out of state to customers. There have been some changes recently that maybe will help clarify the rules for dealers. But first, can you give a little background on the legal framework that dealers current or formerly had uh, when they sold out of state and their obligation to collect sales tax? Yeah, sure. I could be happy to do that. Um, it's it's frankly been a little bit of a complicated issue for uh, for dealers when they're selling out of state. And until recently, there was a Supreme Court case from back in the early 1990s called the Quill case that where there's a mail order business that was selling into North Dakota, and there was a challenge as to whether or not that business could be subject to uh, sales tax in, in North Dakota, even though they didn't have any any kind of location there. And uh, that case was really decided under the is the pre-internet uh, days, and um, the Supreme Court, you know, they kind of looked at it and they said, hey, you know, this it's going to be very complicated for this kind of business to comply with tax laws in the states. They're not using any of the state's resources, so. We think um, you, know, you have to have nexus. It's kind of like a connection. You've got to have a sufficient connection to the state to be subject to sales tax. We're going to establish this bright line test called physical presence. So if you've got a physical presence in that state, then you can be subject to the sales tax. And the problem is, the problem is then is that that bright line test has been anything but bright line. Is, is that they've kind of left it to the states then set out their kind of their own rules as to what constitutes physical presence. So an obvious one, so from a dealer perspective, an obvious one is whether you have a location there or not, and that's really not even an open question for, for dealers. But the less obvious ones that dealers can get tripped up on are things like do you have a sales guy that is out conducting, you know, soliciting customers in a different in a neighboring state? Do you rent equipment in a different state? Do you do you deliver to your customers on your own vehicles? Or do you do do field repair work. You send out your service trucks to different states. All the things uh, different states can say those are enough to constitute a physical presence in the state and then trigger your obligation as a dealer to start collecting sales tax on all of your taxable transactions with customers in those states. And the, the problem has been is that a lot of people just aren't even aware of these. They're not aware of how much they can do and be subject to sales tax. And so out of ignorance or uh, of the law or just general lack of awareness, a lot of folks really haven't paid any attention, you know, to those rules until they might come up under an audit. So it's been a very confusing area up to this point. Right. And so it sounds like because of the internet growth of the internet sales in the states that did not have a physical presence, the Supreme Court 
recently issued a ruling that changed the landscape and actually reversed some of their uh, previous holdings that you just discussed. Can you talk about that ruling, what it is, why the Supreme Court got involved, and what the new rule is? Sure. Yeah, not not a problem. In fact, the, yeah, the, exactly right, Eric. There's a case uh, that came out just a little over a year ago. It's called the Wayfair case, and uh, it, the Supreme Court did. Uh, they, they took a look at the changing competitive landscape, and, and kind of one clarification is that the old rule I just mentioned is still out there, but what's happened now is, that, is the Supreme Court's now recognized that it's not necessary, that physical presence isn't the only rule. And and so what happened is that they they relooked at this thing and they said look when we when we looked at the mail order business situation we were really there's an estimate of it would impact maybe three billion dollars of transactions that that would not be subject to the different you know states uh, tax rules and like the mail order business scenario well that number's jumped up to about fifty billion dollars in lost tax revenue is estimated in in the early 2020s. And so there's a significant increase of tax revenue that's not being collected. And the other issue is, is really, it truly is not being collected because um, even when you didn't have physical presence, the customer in that state is supposed to collect and pay tax to, you know, to the other state as a use tax. And what was happening is customers weren't doing it. And so this billions and billions of dollars is really now viewed as lost tax revenue that no, one, no state is getting. And so the Supreme Court was sympathetic to that. They've also said it's a lot easier to comply with sales tax rules in multiple jurisdictions due to the sophisticated business systems. Uh, states are investing in broadband networks now, so they're actually investing real dollars that actually are supporting these out-of-state businesses. And so, yeah, we think it's now okay to maybe look at some other new rule. And so they've, what they've done is they've now say this, this second test that can be used is called an economic presence test. And they've authorized now states to go in and and base nexus on whether or not how many dollars of transactions do you with, do with people or customers in their states, or how many transactions do you do with people, and and so that has now set off in a much more you know a clear economic test, economic presence test alongside the physical presence test. Got it. And so under the new nexus rules, there's some clear thresholds. But the Supreme Court left it to the states to decide what those thresholds are. How is that shaping up? And has every state established these thresholds? Are they all the same? What's it look like for dealers out there? You know, it's uh, it is a little bit uh, all over the map. Although there there's there are some definite trends out there. Um, right now, this is this is really changing, frankly, by the day. But but virtually every state that has a sales tax has picked up this issue in in one way or the other. There's a few that actually haven't taken official action yet, but in almost every all considering them. You know, in, in Weedis territory, for example, Kansas and Missouri have not actually taken official action, but we're, you know, we'll expect to see some action taken here probably pretty, pretty shortly. And, and those that have taken action, they've, they've tended to follow pretty closely what South Dakota used and that was the basis of the Wayfair Challenge and, and their test that they adopt as sales that were over 100, uh, annual sales of over $100,000 into that state or 200 separate transactions into the state. And you've got some states that have taken an approach of looking at higher thresholds, um, California, and then even now Texas through a regulation have adopted uh, $500,000 as a threshold. Um, some states have, uh, have already switched. Oklahoma started at 10,000 and they've moved up to 100,000. And, and then you've got some states that are just looking at, they're looking at transaction volumes alone and they've dropped the separate transactions requirement just because it'd be harder to, harder to really audit and enforce. 
And so um, it's really, it's all over the map, but it's usually some component of transactions or dollars. Got it. Somewhat, I guess. And so <laughs> with all these new <laughs> standards that apply to dealers, like we mentioned at the get-go, sell products and services that include some taxable and then some tax-exempt uh, sales across state lines. So what does that look like now for dealers if they're selling into a different state and they reach that threshold of either the the, the amount or the transaction amount? Uh, what does it look like for them? Does that change the nature of their tax-exempt status or on some of their products? What does that look like? No, it's a, it's a good question, and and um, you know, a lot, as you know, a lot of uh, a lot of our dealers and our members have, um, you know, they, they rely on, on ag uh, equipment or ag sales tax exemptions, and often don't have to collect tax on a lot of their sales to customers. But um, for purposes of these new, um, let's let's just use the hundred thousand uh, dollar test. In in all of these states, the the hundred thousand dollars is measured on all of your sales to customers in that state, uh, whether they're taxable or tax exempt. And so, for a lot of the dealers out there, um, you know, frankly, the dollars, the the, the dollar volume um, test is really what's going to catch them because you know a single piece of equipment over a hundred thousand dollars, and and so dealers have to track both taxable and tax exempt for that that revenue test, and then they're likely have they're likely even even when they sell a lot of equipment under an exemption, there's going to be other equipment that's not going to be exempt. So so think about like uh, UTVs, uh, snowmobiles, or lawn equipment. All of those things might typically be taxable, and and so if they've sold a, a combine, let's say, into another state, then all of their other sales of, the, of that other kind of equipment is going to be they're going to have to register for sales tax and collect and remit sales tax to that other state for those other kinds of equipment they sell to. Right. And so it sounds like there's some states that are more closely monitoring this, have passed some legislation already, some that are, are yet to. How are states going about notifying dealers that they are obligated to collect sales tax uh, within their state? And what should dealers do when they are contacted by a state Department of Revenue, for instance? Yeah, that's, uh, that's another uh, good question. I think I think you're going to see a lot more activity in this area as, as the uh, new rules become you know, come more into effect, or people become more aware of them. And in some states, you know, they are being more proactive. Uh, a lot of states have posted guides on their websites. Um, you know, so that's there's there are resources there if you are worried about whether or not you fall under the jurisdiction of that state. Um, other states would be more proactive. They're sending out notices. Uh, they might be targeting industries, uh, and and so in the neighboring states, they're the more likely candidates to be selling into the state. Um, and I would also expect in the future, kind of taken off of them, uh, states have done with respect to income tax collections, for example, I would expect uh, states to begin sending out questionnaires to likely candidates uh, for, you know, conducting sales across state lines and, and almost encouraging self-reporting uh, by dealers. And, and we'll see kind of a combination of all those things be, be adopted, uh, just kind of taking a playbook from, from what states have done in other tax, uh, tax situations, non-sales tax situations. If a dealer, you know, receives, you know, a specific uh, questionnaire, for example, uh, the the advice is going to be that generally it's it's you don't want to ignore that. A lot of times, uh, dealers, uh, to the extent they do, you know, respond to those kinds of things, might be eligible for voluntary uh, reporting, uh, which might get you out of penalties and interest. For example, if it turns out you are sub sales tax, uh, but in those situations, we'd recommend you contact you know contact your legal counsel to determine how you should respond. In a lot of cases, responding to a specific questionnaire, uh, those questions be a little bit misleading, or not entirely you know, painting the whole picture. 
for you. And so really your response may end up being a letter back to them framing, you know, framing the issues in a way that, that you know, you and your legal counsel feel is the, is the appropriate way they should be interpreted under the law. And so you do want to have caution. You don't want to ignore it. Yeah, that's great advice. And so it sounds like with all of this going on, it's really fluid. There's a lot of things changing, and there will be more things changing as the legislature start to adjourn and, and finish up, wrap up their sessions. Will you be providing any future information about these changes and updates on any potential bills that may be working their way through the state legislatures? Yeah, Eric, we certainly are. You know, we'll be definitely be paying attention to what's going on. Uh, we'll be contacting, you know, WIDA if, there's, if there are changes, you know, so you can you know, get information out to the members on this. I mean, shoot, even, you know, I wrote an article a couple months ago that, you know, already there's been changes since then, you know, with laws that are, laws and relations that are being adopted, you know, so every, every uh, it seems like every week there's something that's changing. And, you know, in, in particular, in, in, in WIDA's area, you know, we've got activity in Kansas, Missouri. We're going to have to monitor uh, New Mexico and Texas have recently made changes. And so there's a lot going on in the area. And so we'll, we'll plan on keeping you updated, in particular, since we're going to see a lot of this activity. All these new rules are coming into place this year. And so we're going to see kind of the audit stuff picking up and, and exposures to dealers is going to start coming, taking place in probably the next two to three years as, as the states kind of catch up to who's, who are likely candidates to be responsible for paying sales tax. Well, it's good to hear. And we got a lot of uh, people looking at this issue and keeping up on it. And uh, we'll be sure to keep dealers informed as well. Lance Formal, thanks so much for joining us. I uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future on this and other topics. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Across the country, state legislative sessions are winding down and adjourning. Thus far, that means good news for equipment dealers and the farm equipment industry. Despite over 30 right-to-repair bills being introduced in various states, not a single bill has passed yet. The issue continues to gain national prominence as more Democratic presidential candidates adopt the populist policy as part of their campaign, the latest addition being Senator Bernie Sanders. Criticism of farm equipment manufacturers over right to repair continues to ramp up in the media despite legislation failing at every level. Why is that? Partly to blame is the adoption of right to repair as a policy platform by at least two prominent members of the Democratic presidential field. The issue is also ripe for oversimplification, and the seeming battle between corporate entities and the proverbial little guy makes it an easy populist policy for people to rally behind. The real problem is the lack of general education about technology on the farm and farming practices in general. The less education there is about a topic, the more oversimplified and wrong explanations are adopted. In the state legislative arena, we have been able to educate legislators, even urban ones, about what is really happening on the farm and the capabilities of farm equipment. What legislators quickly discover is that there is no right being infringed on, especially a right to repair. The real concern is the right to modify equipment, which carries with it all kinds of concerns about safety, the environment, data security, and liability. Once the complexity of the issue is conveyed, Legislators begin to think past the oversimplified explanations and confront the reality of the issue. When that happens, so-called right-to-repair advocates lose, because the reality is very different from the one they initially portray. We also have to continue working with other agriculture stakeholder groups, such as farm bureaus. 
We have continued doing that in states like Idaho, where we recently met with staff of the Farm Bureau to discuss their members' concerns about right to repair. While we have no guarantee from them about what their position will be on the issue, we do have a common interest in bringing stakeholders together, including equipment manufacturers, dealers, and producers, to discuss what is working and what isn't, and to develop solutions ourselves instead of being prompted by outsider activists who are not part of the industry. That has been and remains the best path forward on this issue. WIDA is committed to carrying out dealer demonstrations across North America to avoid unnecessary and divisive legislation that will undoubtedly have unintended consequences for our industry. Three states now have new lemon laws relating to farm equipment. South Dakota was the first to pass their entirely new statutory framework creating a lemon law for farm equipment. The legislation is very similar to automobile lemon laws found around the country. It includes the number of repair attempts and the process required before claiming reimbursement or replacement under the lemon law. The South Dakota legislation also includes an important safeguard for dealers so that they are not financially liable for much of the requirements of the law. Instead, the law explicitly places the burden on manufacturers. In Arkansas, the legislation was not clearly drafted. Although amendments were made to the bill, it does not provide the equivalent safeguards to dealers as the Lemon Law in South Dakota does. Despite that, the legislation has passed and has now become law. The third state to adopt farm machinery lemon laws was West Virginia. That state took an altogether novel approach to the issue. In what may be considered a shortcut, the West Virginia legislature incorporated farm equipment into the existing automobile lemon law statute. That means there are other components of the auto dealer statute that now apply to farm equipment dealers as well, which may be beneficial in some instances and not as beneficial in others. These three examples show that input in the process matters. Well-crafted legislation requires that those who are affected by the legislation have a strong voice in the process to ensure that legislation reflects the realities of the situation. As with other training legislation, it's doubtful that we have seen the last of farm equipment lemon laws, although most states will have to wait until next year to entertain the idea. This has been We to Connect. If you have a question, would like to suggest future topics, or just tell us what you think about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at westerneda.com, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to We to Connect on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.